Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We're going to finish chapter 12 this morning. Last time we talked about how to love your enemies. And next time, when we look at Romans 13, we'll talk about how to love authority. Just a few verses, 19 through 21, in between, forming a kind of bridge between these two ideas. So what we talked about this morning will connect with what we talked about last time, but we'll also introduce or put a lay a foundation for where we are about to go as we talk about how to love justice, how to love justice. So hear the word of the Lord. This is Romans 12, verses 19, 20, and 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, we ask your blessing on your word as it is preached. We pray that your spirit would speak to us through it. In Christ's name, amen. You can't take the law into your own hands. We all know that. We're not supposed to seek vengeance. Vengeance is not for real life. Vengeance is for entertainment. Vengeance is something that we can be thrilled by in movies, but not something that we're meant to perpetrate in reality. It's interesting when you think about how entertaining vengeance is. Taking revenge is a major plot point in a lot of our favorite movies. In fact, I was surprised when I was going online looking for lists. I thought I'd I'd bring you a list of like the top 10 revenge movies so that I could illustrate to you just how popular the idea of revenge is. The problem is there are a lot of lists, and they're all different movies, and I'm not positive, but I would guess that about 90% of all the movies fit on one of these lists or another. I was astonished how many movies I would not have said were about revenge actually feature some sort of revenge plot in them. And these are often, at least for me, some of the most satisfying parts of the movie. There's something really satisfying about setting the record straight, balancing the scales, someone deciding that they've had enough and now they're going to get some payback. We root for heroes who do what we know you're not supposed to do, who seek revenge, and always in a certain pattern, if you watch revenge movies, you start at the bottom and you work your way up so that you save the the, the most bad person for last when you're seeking your revenge. But we don't do that in real life. It's not the way we live in real life. I've known one person in my entire life who kept an enemies list of people that he intended to have revenge on in life, and even he did not intend to kill them just to thwart their professional ambitions. 
revenge is not something we do in real life. It's certainly not something we would brag about because everybody knows you shouldn't be vengeful. Not just Christians, but everybody frowns on revenge outside of the realm of entertainment. Revenge is bad, but there is this this little thing called payback or karma we talked about last time, and that's different. You would never seek to kill your enemies in order to get back at them for the things that they've done to you, but it can be satisfying when what goes around comes around. It can be satisfying when people who have done bad things have bad things happen to them. In fact, we cheer when a little payback is administered, and it can be very thrilling when you happen to be the one who's able to administer the payback as well. Again, on the one hand, we would never seek vengeance. But on the other hand, in a smaller way, in a humbler way, a little payback can be really satisfying. Holding grudges, keeping score, wishing that people would get what's coming to them, would get their comeuppance, even doing whatever's in your power to see that that happens. All of that is behavior that we indulge in and celebrate because we don't think of that as the same thing as vengeance. Those attitudes, those ideas, those hopes for bad people to have bad things happen to them, settle the score, that stuff seems okay. It's enjoyable. It can be intoxicating, a little payback. But as we said last time, part of loving your enemies is disrupting karma. Part of loving your enemies is trying to ensure that what goes around doesn't come around, that the people who do evil to you are not paid back in kind. That's part of loving your enemies, and that's a profound challenge to the spirit of payback, to the grudge holding, to the celebration when people get what's coming to them. All of that is being challenged by these words of Paul, never avenge yourself. Now, a lot of times we justify this desire, this thrill at payback by saying it's the love of justice. Well, of course, I get a little thrill when bad people have bad things happen to them because I love justice, and I love seeing that justice enacted. But when we justify our love of vengeance by calling it a love of justice, we demonstrate that we have no idea what justice truly is in the eyes of God. Because the Bible takes payback off the table. And the question you have to ask yourself is why? Why does the Bible take payback off the table? Why can't we indulge these very human feelings. What's the problem with that? Well, for one thing, the problem that Paul points out is that God will vindicate his people. The Bible takes payback off the table for us because it's God's job to vindicate his people instead of avenging the wrongs that are done to you. Paul says, you must leave it to God the just wrath of God, that is his job, and he is zealous to protect it. He quotes these words, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What he's quoting there are words from Deuteronomy chapter 32. 
It's worth going back and looking at that. If you turn in your Bible back to Genesis 32, or you make a mental note to go back and read the entirety of chapter 32, you'll see once again a, a, a larger context to the words that I think is important. I'm not going to read the entire chapter to you, but I'll give you a few points here so that you see the context of the words. When God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, he's speaking specifically about his promise, his intention to deliver his covenant people from their oppression. Like he's promising to deliver them from their oppressors. So if you look in in chapter 32, verse 4, the rock, which is a reference to God, the rock, his work is perfect. And listen to this. For all his ways are justice. Not even all his ways are just, but all his ways are justice. The ways of God are justice. That's how much he loves justice. If you skip ahead all the way to verse 31, for their rock, their God, is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. So there's a context here of enemies, oppressors, that's being referred to in a difference between the two. So the fact of their oppression, the the wrongdoing. It's not being glossed over. It's just the power to make it right is not in our hands. And then if you go to verse 35, you get our quote. But we're going to keep reading and see the larger context. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. He sees that their power is gone. And there is none remaining, bond or free. So when those words are spoken, vengeance is mine, I will repay. When you hear those words, it's not just like a, don't take revenge because it's bad for you. That you need to let go of grudges because they're corrosive and they'll eat you up inside and that sort of thing. You just got to let that stuff go for the sake of your your, uh, psychological health. God is saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is not your job. This is not in your power to do. You cannot do justice. That's okay, I'll do it. This is my job. This is my promise to you. That the wrong that has been done will be righted, but not by you by me. And God is zealous to protect his right to do justice. That's what's behind this. God intends to keep his promise. Don't take it into your own hands, because to do that is essentially denying that you believe God will do what he says he will do. Usurping something that God reserves for himself. That's the course of the words. Instead of vengeance, what we're meant to do, how we're meant to live, is the way that we talked about last time, loving our enemies. But here, Paul gives us uh, the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 25, 21 and 22, which teaches, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So these Old Testament promises, these teachings that Paul is alluding to here, 
he's saying God will vindicate his people, so it's not your job to do this. God will do it. God will give us justice. And God will reward his people for showing hospitality to their enemies. If we're meant to love our enemies, to feed our enemies, to give them water when they thirst, how can we hold grudges against them? How can we secretly harbor a desire to avenge ourselves against them? Those two longings are incompatible with one another. So the doing of justice, the the vengeance must be left to God. The work of hospitality is given to us to live as Christ would have us live, to live as Christ to them, treat our enemies with love. That's why the Bible takes payback off the table. It's God's job. But there's another reason, too, which is because payback doesn't work. Because payback doesn't work. It's not the way evil is fought. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we seek to overcome evil, typically the way that we would overcome evil is by perpetrating greater evil upon it. Right? If, if evil is done to you, you respond with, with such a devastating and violent response of disproportionate evil that those who have wounded you regret that they ever thought of doing it and, and will never again seek to do it. That's just common sense. You have to be strong if you don't want to be taken advantage of. You have to demonstrate to people what they get when they challenge you. You have to answer evil with evil. You have to fight fire with fire. And a lot of people who would reject those words live them. We see enemies all around us, and we want to do something about it. We don't like the direction of of the culture of the world, and we want to to do something. We want to be active in the transformation of the culture, but what works? How do you do that? How do you accomplish those goals? One thing that seems not to work very well is this sort of, you know, spiritualized, passive, just love everybody attitude. Sometimes you have to fight the enemy with their own weapons and use those weapons against them. If they're good at at twisting language and and politicizing everything, and, and, and undermining everything, and destroying everyone who, who isn't like them, then, then the only answer to that is to become better at those things than they are. To, to twist language more effectively than they do. To, to destroy more people than they do. So that they are stopped. That's the way we tend to assume the world works. That's pragmatism. Paul isn't calling us here to be pragmatic. In fact, he's telling us pragmatism doesn't work. That evil cannot be overcome by evil. That evil can only be overcome by good. You answer evil in kind. You don't balance the scales. You just create more evil. Seems obvious when you think about it. Injustice cannot be corrected by injustice. Injustice can only be answered by justice only way to fight injustice would be to establish actual justice. Which leads to an insight that I think we all need to hear, and as Christians especially, we need to hear this. It is not enough 
to fight against what you're against. It is not enough to fight against the things that you're against. You have to actually do the things you're for. All too often, what we are known for is what we are against. If you ask people what it means to be a Christian, they give you a list of the things Christians are against, what Christians oppose, what Christians abhor, what Christians are angry about, that sort of thing. But if you ask, what are Christians for? That's a harder question for people to answer. Part of the reason that it's hard is that we're a lot better at articulating what we're against than actually saying what we're for. It's important, I would say desperately important as a church, that we commit ourselves to saying and doing the good, much more so than we do to opposing the bad. Not that opposing bad isn't important, But if all you do is oppose what is bad without actually doing what is good, it's just another variety of evil, which the Bible refers to as hypocrisy. The most important thing you can do in the struggle against darkness is to be light, is to actually live your calling. For the church, the lesson is to articulate a vision of the good and to pursue that good in our own lives. We're not fighting evil if we're neglecting the good. We are perpetuating it no matter what we say. People sometimes uh, use that uh, quote supposedly attributed to St. Francis when he preached the gospel, use words if necessary, and uh, you know, I've, I've never been one who's been content in my own life enough to, to feel that I wouldn't need to use words. But it is a beautiful thought. It is a beautiful thought to think that the life that we live, that the faithfulness that we show, the gospel, the love that we would show to our enemies would be such that people wouldn't need us to tell them what we believe. That our lives would actually testify to. All too often, that's not the case. We need to think about what it means to love our enemies. Why is it so difficult to tell the difference between justice and revenge, justice and payback? I don't know if you've noticed this, but we have a hard time in our culture when we talk about justice. uh, We tend to confuse justice with revenge and not be able to tell the difference between the two. And there's a reason for that. As a culture, we are materially rich, but we are spiritually impoverished, and that's basically because we invest much more in the material than we do in the spiritual. We have a sense of the world as purely material. And everything beyond the material world, that's mythology. That's all been hollowed out. It's not just that we no longer believe in a God who made all things, but a lot of the sort of abstract ideas have been toppled along with them. Justice is one of those things. When we talk about justice now as a culture, as a society, the question you have to ask is, what are we actually talking about? Is there such a thing as justice with a capital J 
if there isn't a God to give us that justice, if there is no sort of realm of reality above the material world, then isn't justice just made up by human beings? And if it's just made up by human beings, then surely justice, like every other metaphysical idea, isn't it just ultimately a power play? Something that was invented by the powerful in order to oppress the powerless? That's the way we tend to think about justice. And so we're skeptical about the possibility of justice, whether justice is actually a real thing. If it's just a social construct, then why should we believe in justice? It's interesting when we think about justice now, we don't often see oppression as the perversion of justice. Oftentimes, we tend to see oppression as the purpose of justice. Justice is a thing that was made up by human beings to oppress other human beings. So that it becomes very difficult to know what we're talking about when we talk about justice. And people tend to assume, for example, in the context of the courtroom, that the desire for justice and the desire for vengeance are the same thing. Because a crime can only be an offense against what exists. If there is no God, if there is no justice, we can't offend against that. We can only offend against other people, and when other people are offended, they want payback. They want revenge. So that tends to be the way that we see all of justice. The way that Paul teaches us how to love justice here is by restoring to us this idea that, that there is justice with a capital J, that there is something large and real, that it exists in the character of God, that it's possible to violate a real thing, to do something truly unjust in violating the ways of God, but also that it's possible for God to do real justice. The justice is not just an illusion. By saying justice belongs to God, that, that this is in the hands of God, preserving those rights for God, this is humbling, but it's also freeing. Humbling because it reminds us that we don't have the power to do perfect justice. Reminds us that we don't have the power to balance the scales. And that when we set out to set the world right, oftentimes we just make it worse in a different way. But the realization is also freeing because it takes the responsibility of justice, of payback, out of our hands. There can be justice even if you can't bring it about. There can be justice even if no human power is capable of bringing it about. Because that justice, that human justice, the real justice that God has ordained, it's not just about vengeance. Punishment and restitution are not just revenge by another name. When we do things that are unjust, we offend against a just God, and something must be done about that offense to make it right. There is a larger debt against divine justice that must be dealt with. In Micah 6.8, when the prophet Micah gives us the things that the Lord requires of us, the very first one is to do justice. 
And the prohibition on vengeance does not negate that or conflict with it or, or create any sort of attention to the difference between those two things. It's possible to do justice and leave vengeance to God. In fact, in order to do justice, it is necessary to leave vengeance to God. Of course, God works through means to do justice. And as we'll see in Romans 13, he has instituted human authorities as a means of accomplishing divine justice. There's a biblical reality, in other words, behind the words that I said at the beginning, you can't take justice into your own hands. That's true. That's biblical. Behind our respect for the rule of law in general is an acknowledgement that the law comes from some higher source than self and represents the character of God. It's interesting, a lot has been written recently about the history of the civil rights movement. And a lot of uh, obituaries at the death of John Lewis talked about the origins of the civil rights movement in the United States in the 50s and 60s and how that movement was nurtured by the black church and how so many of the ideas that we're talking about here, the ideas that are deeply biblical, mosaic ideas, came to shape the way people thought about justice in that context. One of the striking things, of course, about that period and that movement was the practice of nonviolence. In situations where we would say violence was often justified, self-defense. But but the principled practice of nonviolence, a refusal to defend oneself when you had every right to, not answering the evil of your oppressors with more evil, but overcoming it with good and with love. These are striking things, and you would never look at that movement and that determination, that sacrifice, and say, those people must not have loved justice. They must not have loved justice because they denied themselves the right of vengeance. Just the other way around. When you see that ethic acted out, you don't respond by thinking there's, there's a, a, a lack of love of justice. You start to think, wow, there's a, a love of justice here that I'm not sure I've experienced. An ennobling and profound love of justice that points to an origin that is more than human. Taking payback off the table didn't mean they loved justice less. Gave more weight to the appeal for real justice. It was motivated out of a love for justice. I think the way to, to learn to love justice is to leave vengeance to God. When we leave vengeance to God, we create the space in which we can love God's justice instead of twisting it by taking it into our own hands. We sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. One of the the phrases we sing is, it was my sin that held him there. It's a contemplation of the very things that we're talking about here, the, the offense that is not answered in kind, the recognition that what Jesus has done for us is exactly what Paul is saying we must do here. 
that Jesus loved and pardoned his persecutors. Us. Jesus found his enemies hungry and he fed them. He found his enemies thirsty and he gave them, he gave us something to drink. Jesus overcame evil and he did it through good. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that living in Christ means doing the same thing means following the example of Jesus. If you struggle with feelings of vengeance, grudges, anger towards other people, wanting to see them get what's coming to them, that sort of thing, you know you shouldn't, but you do anyway. How do you fight that? Well, the way to not avenge is not to focus on not avenging. It's not to go through life saying, don't do that, don't hold grudges, don't be angry. Because that's just another way of, of, of fighting what you're against instead of being what you're for. So the way to let go of vengeance is actually to leave vengeance to God and focus on justice instead. To love justice so much, to believe in it so much, be so committed to it, that you're willing to leave it in the hands of God. And when you leave that in God's hands, what's left for you to do is to love, even your enemies. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.